Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're continuing my semi-regular look at the amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are Palace of Glittering Delights episodes 38, 40, 42, 44, 46, 49. Obviously, didn't have anything else interesting happening during the 40s. 52, 93, 94, 108, 113, 118, and 125. Covering Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man issue 77. And so we continue where we left off with Amazing Spider-Man issue 78. This is readily available on Comixology in Marvel Masterworks Volume 9, or where I'm reading it, in Omnibus Volume 3. Try not to kill any vagrants with it. Issue 78 came out with a cover date of November 1969 and boasts, as is the norm by this point, a truly stupendous cover. A new adversary, the Prowler, takes aim at Spider-Man with his wrist blasters. The Prowler is an excellent design, with his grey cowl and cape, gloves and boots, both of which look armed for Burr, and his green tunic and pants, which oddly are not skin-tight. Spider-Man is dodging in close quarters. The cover is so good it allows the reader to overlook that the Prowler seems to be hovering in mid-air. Artist John Romita's son, John Romita Jr., conceived the Prowler, and this is his first contribution to the comics. He would have been around 13 years old here. It's such a striking design, in fact, that Todd McFarlane ripped it... <coughs> that Todd McFarlane, sorry, borrowed heavily from it for Spawn. Didn't rip it off. No, borrowed. Homage, I think is the word. The Knight of the Prowler is by Stan Lee, but John Buscema is the innovator and Jim Mooney the illustrator. We discussed these bizarre credits last time. The splash page is gorgeous. Spider-Man swings high above New York. On the face of it, an image we've seen many times, but Buscema and Mooney make it look shiny and new. Touched for the very first time, as Madonna would have it. The New York landscape in the background is superb. Featuring the origin of a dramatic new supervillain, runs the caption, which is typical Stanley hard sell, but not wholly accurate, as we'll get to later. Spidey thinks in cliches as the story begins. The city is quiet. Too quiet. Like the lull before the storm. Talk about signposting it. With no action to speak of, Spider-Man therefore wonders why on earth he's swinging around the city like an idiot when he can be with a certain blonde bombshell. He hits a payphone to call Gwen Stacy, but realises he doesn't have a dime. Oh, the problems we had before mobile phones. Spotting a dime under the grid, Spidey uses his webbing to pull it up. Nice use of his powers for an everyday event here. Sure, he could have used his strength to lift the grid, take the coin and place the grid back, but... This is more fun. The use of angles in the art is imaginative and arty while still being coherent. However, there's a weird Stan Lee moment here. I've mentioned before the curious distinction between the art and the writing, and that crops up again. Stan points out that the bulb in the phone box is burnt out, which is fine, as it sets up the next moment. But his qualifier is that Spidey will have to dial by feel, which is weird. 
It's not that dark that Spider-Man can't see the dial. It is, after all, still a rotary phone. Still, it sets up the next scene with some loudmouth moron. Some fool bangs on the door to let a man use a blasted phone! How about waiting your turn, buddy? Spider-Man casually reaches out and lifts the goon up with one hand. The goon flees, not recognising that it's Spider-Man because of the aforementioned dark. This is another funny scene, typical of the kind of stuff Stan tied to inject into the books, and Spider-Man calling the goon uncouth is, is worth a wry grin. When Spidey finally gets through to Gwen, she blows him off, saying she's busy. The panel pulls back to reveal Flash Thompson. Is Gwen cheating on Peter with Flash? Peter is unaware of this, obviously, and he's a tad miffed, but he accepts that Gwen can't just be hanging around waiting for him to call. Suddenly, this dark, miserable area of New York is a hive of activity. Schoolgirls look at Spider-Man and point, thinking, I thought he'd be taller, whilst John and Joan Q. Citizen look on, both worried and amazed. The schoolgirls ask for Spidey's autograph, snapping Spider-Man out of his funk, and he swings away, preferring it when they were scared of him. Be careful what you wish for, Spidey. He heads for home. Some funny moments happen, even if they don't make a lot of sense. Peter, for example, can't get in his apartment because Harry is on the phone. Why doesn't he just sneak in via his room like he did in the last issue? He could get some clothes, change, nip back out of the building and enter through the front door as Peter Parker. Alternatively, why didn't he take clothes with him? When Peter finally does get into the apartment 20 years later, Harry just disappears. Did he go out? Was this not worthy of a mention in a caption? Harry's left, I can get back in the building, that kind of thing. Peter finds that he can't concentrate, concerned about Gwen, and decides to go for a walk, secretly hoping he'll bump into Gwen. I must confess, as a kid, I did this. I'd walk past the house of a girl I liked multiple times, just hoping I'd bump into her. I don't think it ever worked. Peter walks to the coffee bean to grab a cup of java and sees Gwen sitting there with Flash. Peter is despondent, and he wanders off in yet another funk. He walks into two burly-looking guys who try to give him a hard time. So out of it is Peter, he casually backhands both of them into a brick wall. Suddenly realising what he's done, he checks that they are okay and leaves, pondering the Gwen-Flash situation. Unlike Peter, we can eavesdrop on Gwen and Flash's conversation. And it turns out that Flash is simply trying to help Gwen understand why Peter keeps disappearing. Flash isn't that much help, as we didn't expect him to be, and Gwen vows to find out Peter's secret so she can understand him better. A subplot that should really have gone much further than it actually did, by which I mean it doesn't go anywhere. But these romantic subplots of youth are all about misunderstandings, and Stan seems to be setting up Peter telling Gwen his secret, and I do wish he'd gone through with that. Sadly, it was not to be. Also, let's pause for a second. We are on page 10 of a 20-page story. And there hasn't been a story. This has all been character work. It's all about Peter and Gwen, who they are, where the relationship is at, where they're going, relatable teenage drama. Compare this to the Superman comics I covered recently, where all was story and plot, and there was very little character. Neither approach is better or worse, but it really does solidify why I preferred Marvel to DC as a kid. The characters just felt richer. Peter wanders off through the night, and as dawn breaks after a, a night of just wandering the streets alone and despondent, he sees a window cleaner, and he thinks that 
I bet that window cleaner doesn't have half the problems I do. A nice segue into the second half of the issue. See, the window cleaner is Hobie Brown, and he's an African-American version of Peter Parker. He looks at Peter and wonders if that guy below has the problems he has. Hobie is only washing windows temporarily, as he tries to get himself noticed as an inventor. His girlfriend, Mindy, is trying to encourage Hobie to be more go-getting and show his boss his designs, but Hobie is bitter. As a person of colour, he feels he was only hired in the first place to meet a quota. He tries to show his boss, Mr. Clark, his new designs for a harness that follows more stringent safety codes, but Clark isn't interested. You know what that'll cost? He barks and throws Hobie out. Hobie was simply ahead of his time. Another decade or so and the Health and Safety Legislation Act is in full swing and he'd have been a millionaire. Wouldn't you know it, Hobie is cleaning the Bugle office windows, specifically the window of J. Jonah Jameson. Joby comes across as telling Hobie off, but in fact, Joni is warning Hobie that Clark is on the rampage. I've mentioned before the redemption of Jonah, and this is another really nice step in that direction. When Clark busts in to give Hobie grief, Jonah takes the blame for Hobie's slow work. He gives Clark a mouthful about his prices. Hobie refuses to take Clark's crap and quits, and Clark tells Hobie he's had enough of his type, a racial slur up there with go back to where you came from, in that we all know what it really means. Jonah instantly chides Clark, telling him to shut up and get out as it's starting to smell around here. Jonah is a class act here. He defends Hobie and gets proper irate when Clark reveals his inherent racism, kicking him out of his office in no uncertain terms. It's a nice look at the real Jonah. He's in his office alone. There's no virtue signalling here, no one for Jonah to show off to. He's happy to try and help this kid, possibly because he knows Clark is a dickhead, and he then calls Clark out on his attitude. A lovely character moment. I have seen some commentary of this issue that the art and script are at odds here, and looking at it without the dialogue, I can see what they mean. The art does look like Jonah yelling at Hobie leads Hobie to be fired, and then he returns to rob the bugle later in retaliation. If that's the case, and it does look like it could be, I much prefer Stan's version. Softening Jonah is a good move. Hobie, however, is now without a job. Because this is a comic book, he decides to do what loads of other cats do and makes himself a costume and gadget with his inventions, calling himself The Prowler. He starts off being a hero, hoping to make a name for himself and then sell his gadgetry, but quickly decides the path to the dark side is quicker and easier and instead becomes a villain. His plan, though, is to rob somewhere as The Prowler and recover the stuff as Hobie. This is where Hobie's idea falls down. How does this help him sell his inventions? Surely it's better for the Prowler to save a few lives. Have the Prowler say, yeah, all my stuff was designed by an inventor named Hobie Brown, and get Hobie's name out there. Still, it's a lovely splash page of the Prowler in his new outfit. Rather interestingly, his costume does look like it's thrown together. Hobie decides that the best way to gain a promotion is to rob a newspaper office. Guess which one he picks? Guess who happens to be there? If you answered A, The Bugle, and B, Peter Parker, award yourself a no prize. If you answered A, The Daily Planet, and B, Clark Kent, you're listening to the wrong show. Peter wants yet another advance from Jonah. 
Jonah, quite understandably, tells Peter to piss off. Peter, annoyed, storms off, but a low-level spider-sense buzz keeps him from leaving. He checks the buzz and runs into Hobie stealing the payroll and the night watchman out cold on the floor. Peter goes to prevent the prowler from escaping just as Jonah walks in. Oh no! To be continued. Check out the audacity on this issue. Spider-Man is only in the first third. And even then, all he does is make a phone call. The second third is all about Peter. And the final third, all about a new character. It's astounding Stan and his artistic team got away with this. And yet they do, effortlessly. Hobie Brown is an interesting new character, making some questionable life choices, yes. And there is the subtext of Hobie's skin colour being what is holding him back with other people unwilling to give a young black kid a chance. Jonah's anger at the casual racism is wonderfully handled, as is Peter's whining and Hobie's background and situation, and how Peter and Hobie's similarities work into the story. All in all, it's a remarkable issue, given that nothing actually happens. Amazing Spider-Man 79, yada yada yada, stunning cover, you know the drill. Peter Parker is hurled out of Jonah's window as Jonah and the Prowler look on, stunned. To prowl no more. As the story begin with Peter, hurl himself out of the window, which seems to contradict the cover, to escape the Prowler, and not have to answer Jonah's questions about how he appears to be holding his own against a supervillain. Given that, A, the Prowler isn't a supervillain, in the sense that he has superpowers, and thus no real match for anyone above normal strength, and... Two, having to explain how you survived a fall from a ten-story window seems to be far more problematic than explaining you've done a few judo lessons. Peter seems to have had a bit of a brain fart. The splash is the cover, mainly. Spider-Man survives, or rather, Peter does, by using his stick-to-the-wall powers to slow his descent gradually, then flip over to his feet. As this is all under cover of night, he isn't too concerned about anyone seeing him or... You know, the prowler looking out of the window. Peter nevertheless gets away with this foolish endeavour and makes it to the street. Is New York ever really quiet enough that he could pull this off? The prowler, meanwhile, bricks it, but is distracted as Jonah and Robbie burst in. This is, supposedly, mere seconds after the end of the last issue, but Peter appears to have changed his jacket and Jonah has removed his. Jonah also bursts through the door twice. He did it last issue. It was why Peter chucked himself out of the window. Robbie has also appeared from nowhere. Jonah leaps to the conclusion that Peter's been thrown out by the Prowler, despite him being in the room with Peter and the Prowler last issue. There is no way the pickup of this issue ties into last issue's cliffhanger. As editor and writer, Stan has to take the blame, as the art could have been altered had the mistakes been picked up in time. Jonah seems more concerned with his payroll than Peter's death, which really struck me as out of character. Jonah is an uber-capitalist, that is true to his character, but not to the point that he'd be more concerned about that than the death of an employee. Nothing is mentioned of the Night Watchman. The Prowler flees to the roof. Jonah calls in the Prowler, despite the Prowler never mentioning his own name. 
Peter, meanwhile, has survived and changed to Spider-Man and is also on the roof waiting for him. There is a nice moment of attention to detail in the art in that the Prowler leaves cracks in the brickwork wherever his fingers are driven into the walls. Somehow, Spider-Man heard Jonah call his new antagonist the Prowler, despite being halfway up a building. What follows is a curious fight in which the Prowler gives Spider-Man far more trouble than he ought to. It's a good fight, well laid out by Buscema and drawn by Mooney, and Spider-Man actually realises that this is more effort than it should be. This hanging a lantern on it allows us to give it a pass. Obviously, Stan doesn't want the Prowler to be captured yet, and so Spidey has to lose the fight. So having Spider-Man comment on it, and put it down to being caught off guard by the Prowler's gadget, is as good an explanation as any for Spidey's poor showing. A curious detail is Spider-Man's spider sense not tingling, which makes no sense. Sure, the Prowler isn't really a bad guy, but Spidey is still in danger. The Prowler's gas pellets allow him to escape, and Spider-Man vows to meet him again. Peter then changes back to his regular clothes and heads back inside to let Jonah and Robbie know he's okay. In the interim, neither man has called the police to report the break-in, theft and attempted murder. Peter tells Robbie and Jonah that Spider-Man saved him. Robbie should be more suspicious of this than he is. Jonah just asks if Peter got any photos. Peter makes it home, mere minutes away from the bugle, according to the caption, and falls into a fitful sleep full of dreams of Gwen and Flash, and probably not erotic dreams. Elsewhere, Hobie Brown is having an equally troubling night. Fearing he's now a murderer, he worries about his girlfriend, Mindy, and what will happen to him now. Stan is doing a really good job playing up the similarities between Hobie and Peter. But then Hobie makes yet another questionable decision. He decides to bring Spider-Man in to prove he's no murderer. How does that make even the tiniest bit of sense? Doesn't matter if the Prowler brings Spider-Man in. The Prowler still believes that he killed Peter Parker. That doesn't go away just because you brought in Spider-Man, who, if memory serves, isn't actually wanted for anything at this point. That only starts happening after the death of George Stacey. Spoilers. The next day, Peter is confronted by Gwen, and Peter is really snippy to her, telling her to go share her problems with Flash. Later, Peter feels terrible about this whole bit, but fortunately, the expositional news network, copyright Michael Baylor, distracts him by announcing the Prowler is, well, prowling around New York, as is his want. This is enough to distract Peter, and he goes to make a gas filter for his mouth and takes to the night skies as Spider-Man. He has no film for his camera, so there's a fun bit in the middle of the issue where he breaks into a drugstore, takes a film, and then drops the money down on a web to the druggist who is working late. So far, this issue's rather predictable. But here Stan throws us a curveball. Sure, Spidey finds the Prowler far too easily in a city of 8 million people, but this time Spider-Man proves to far outclass the Prowler. But when Spider-Man captures and unmasks him, he finds himself sympathetic to young Hobie Brown. Spider-Man tells Hobie he's stolen nothing, hurt no one. He should go and tell Mindy how he really feels and work on his gadgets. It's a poignant ending that almost, almost allows you to ignore that, A, Spider-Man is stupid enough to not only take photos of the Prowler in front of him, but he also points out his camera. Surely when Hobie sees those photos in the bugle with a byline credited to Peter, he'll put two and two together because, you know, he's not stupid. 
Secondly, Hobie still thinks he killed Peter. Spider-Man tells him he's hurt no one. But surely that would have elicited a bigger response than what we get. Hobie should be all, wait, what? And Spidey should tell him that he saved Peter's life and it's all okay. It's an example of how this is a good issue, but still very sloppy. Too much time is devoted to the pointless fights, eight and a half pages in a total of a 20-page story, rather than tying up the loose ends. With a bit more thought, more could have been made of the similarities between Hobie and Peter, Peter's problems with Gwen and Hobie's with Mindy, their entire situation, and the way Spider-Man handles the whole deal. After all, Spider-Man knows Reed Richards, who may be able to help Hobie find employment somewhere where his talents would be put to good use. If we trimmed the first pointless fight, focused on these elements more and not had so rushed an ending, this could have been a classic issue. Instead, it's got a lot to like, but it's very unfocused. The rushed nature of the story may be explained, though. The splash page has an editorial caption saying Marvel has recently introduced policy to reduce the number of multi-part stories, and this issue was originally part two of a three-part tale. To be honest, there doesn't seem enough story here to justify three issues, but it looks like the way they wrapped it up was to cram it all into the last page instead of re-editing the whole story. It doesn't excuse it, but at least it explains it. Issue 80 has Spider-Man seemingly attack the police and men in suits, or is being attacked by them, it's not very clear, whilst the symbolic chameleon laughs in the background. It's a classic cover more due to the composition of the figure work rather than as a cover in its own right. On the trail of the chameleon has more funky credits. John Buscema and Jim Mooney are the illustrators, while John Romita is the art consolidator, whatever the hell that is. The story opens with Peter busy making a new batch of web fluid, presumably with the money he made from selling his pictures of the Prowler. Rather stupidly, he has his costume hung out for all to see rather than stashed in the wardrobe. Flash and Harry come bursting in, neither man having any concept of privacy. Peter goes mad. He attacks Flash, lifts him up like a rag doll, and really seems to shake him up. Bear in mind, Flash has fought in Vietnam at this point, and yet he still looks pretty scared of Peter. Flash's reasons for being here, though, are slightly altruistic. He's here to tell Peter that Gwen is not cheating on him. She was just trying to ask the man who's known him the longest why he's so strange. Peter is actually quite touched by this, and it's quite enlightening to see Flash do this for a man he's never really liked. I mean, yes, Harry was the instigator, but there may be an ulterior motive behind Harry's actions. After all, Mary Jane has made no secret of the fact that she wants to jump Peter's bones. If Peter is on the market, Mary Jane may make a move. Flash, likewise, isn't totally altruistic. He makes it quite clear he made a play for Gwen and she rebuffed him. But, you know, he didn't have to do this. It's the nicest we've ever seen Flash be to Peter since he took responsibility for that fight they both had in high school. Peter calls Gwen and eats crow and Gwen agrees to see him. Gwen is sat at home with reading glasses on her head. There is no reason to assume that these are sunglasses. Not only do they have clear lenses, why would she wear them in the house? She's not Bono. So it begs the question, did Gwen wear glasses? I don't recall ever seeing her in them. Maybe she normally wore contacts, even though they didn't become mass-produced items until 1971. Irrespective of the glasses conundrum, Gwen tells Peter that she'll be at the new exhibit at Midtown Museum, and if Peter wants to accompany her, that'd be keen. 
Gwen's dad is apparently in charge of the security for all the priceless paintings, which kind of explains where George gets some of his money from now he's retired. I mean, sure, he'll get a police pension, but if he's hiring himself out as a security consultant, that's a nice little sideline. Gwen really is a Renaissance woman, isn't she? Not only a scholarship student with a keen interest in the sciences, she's also been seen to be interested in the political machinations of the day. She likes art. This isn't the first time she's been seen to attend exhibits and demonstrations, sometimes on her own. And she's also a dancer and a former beauty queen. I envision Gwen as having studied ballet and tap, maybe contemporary dance, but preferred the academic route rather than the arts. This would play nicely into her oft-times adversarial relationship with Mary Jane, who clearly has chosen to study the arts. And this may be where Mary Jane feels left out. Maybe MJ feels Gwen is smarter than her, and that's part of her inferiority complex regarding Gwen. Anyway, this is all speculation on my part. None of the text supports any of this. Peter arranges to meet Gwen, and of course, the quickest way for him to do that is to head over there as Spider-Man. Flash and Harry leave and don't offer Peter a lift. Some friends. Peter arrives at the museum and quickly dons a natty double-breasted frock coat that makes him look like Mickey DeLenz. Peter wastes no time in apologising to Gwen and takes her aside for a quick necking session. Both Peter and Gwen are embarrassed when George Stacy walks past, but embarrassment turns to surprise when George completely blanks them. A low-level spider-sense tingle is also a cause for concern. Captain Stacy disappears into the room with the most valuable paintings, only for a piercing scream to be heard from that same room a short while later. The paintings are gone, and Stacy is nowhere to be seen. This is one of those issues where keeping the identity of the villain would have been better, because we all know Stacy didn't do this, however the story wants us to think he did. This is compounded when Jonah gives Gwen and Peter a lift home, only to be confronted by George Stacy. Stacy said he never left the house and is a bit confused. Jonah flat out accuses Stacy of being the thief because, you know, evidence, due process, none of that shit means anything to J. Jonah Jameson. Stacy looks an awful lot like actor Robert Lansing in this issue. We then see the chameleon remove his George Stacy mask and gloat about his latest scheme. On the newspaper reporting the exhibition and the news that Captain Stacy will be in charge of the security, Stan gets George's name wrong and calls him John Stacy. No prize explanation. The newspaper gets the name wrong, not Stan. And this would have been really cool if this had been a part of the story and Chameleon was caught because he didn't know Stacy's real name. Sadly, this isn't the case. The recent cock-up regarding Billy Connor's name, this is the second time in half a dozen issues that Stan has gotten a major supporting character's name wrong. Get with the programme, dude. Speaking of getting with the programme, whilst Peter sleeps, he subconsciously realises who the bad guy really is and recalls his last encounter with him. Granted, he recalls it wrong, but it's a dream. Peter seems to remember them fighting in issue two. Peter last met the chameleon in issue one, although we... The readers saw him in issue 15, and Hulk and Iron Man readers have seen him a few times since. Spider-Man races over to the Bugle to arrange with Robbie for him to plant a story to lure the chameleon out. Robbie agrees to do so, but only because, as luck would have it, there just happens to be a transfer of a million dollars happening tomorrow which by pure coincidence was exactly the same scenario Spider-Man suggested that Robbie plant in the next edition of the paper. What are 
the odds. Sadly, Spider-Man's plan backfires. When confronted with Spider-Man at the Bond's transfer, nobody flees for the exits, meaning Spider-Man can't pinpoint who the chameleon is disguised as. It is, in fact, Spidey who's forced to flee when the assembled throngs believed he to be the criminal. Of course, for reasons of plot, his Spider-Sense cannot identify who the chameleon is, which in this case does actually make sense. If the chameleon isn't actually threatening Spider-Man, then his Spider-Sense wouldn't go off. Nevertheless, Spider-Man doesn't run. He believes this is his best chance to nail the chameleon, who he thinks must be here. This is his best chance to steal that money. Spider-Man therefore can't believe his luck when the chameleon is revealed, disguised as Peter Parker. Now, to be fair, yelling, you chose the identity of the one person I knew you couldn't be, is remarkably stupid. You'd have to be really dense to not figure it out. Spider-Man nails the chameleon, and Jonah even asks how Spider-Man knew who the chameleon was. <sighs> I sometimes question Jonah's reporting skills. Spider-Man swings away, his work completed. It's not a bad issue, this, but more for the Peter Parker stuff than anything else. It's a nice break from the formula in that there isn't a couple of silly and pointless fight scenes, nor does it follow the regular structure of these kinds of done-in-one issues. Rather, it's actually nicely plotted throughout. The chameleon doesn't turn out to be any kind of legitimate threat, but the relationships are well handled, particularly between Spider-Man, Peter Parker and Jonah Jameson. More could have been made of Robbie's suspicions about Peter, especially in light of he and Captain Stacy's project, and the ending feels really rushed again. But overall, not a disappointment. Quite an interesting issue, actually. Amazing Spider-Man 81 introduces a new villain, the Kangaroo. Another great Ramita cover adorns the issue, as Spider-Man is about to be jumped on by a regular-looking dude with a Boris Johnson haircut. <sighs> Horrific. The coming of the kangaroo has dispensed with any credit shenanigans, instead listing the creators with no jobs attached. Jonah yells at Spider-Man as he swings by. Spider-Man, swinging through town in broad daylight! That clown thinks he can get away with anything! I'm not sure, Jonah, but I don't think that's actually illegal. The reason for Spider-Man's haste is made apparent. He's meeting Aunt May at Penn Station, fresh off the train from Florida. The hustle and bustle of the station lead to Peter accidentally bumping into a couple laden down with luggage. They are really obnoxious to Peter, calling him names and saying he shouldn't be let out without a keeper. If anybody ever deserved a web ball in the mouth, it's these two. By the kind of coincidence that happens all the time in comics, May was travelling on the same train as the kangaroo. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume he's Australian, hence the bad accent. The kangaroo is escorted off the train by G-Men, who tell him that they need to put the cuffs on him now he's in the city. Why did they not have him in cuffs on the train? Is there a law against that? I mean, his power is the ability to leap like a kangaroo, so what difference would cuffs make anyway? If he's been deported, where was he originally that he couldn't be put on a flight? To absolutely no one's surprise, the kangaroo escapes from the useless G-Men and leaps away. We are then treated to the silliest villain origin in comics. I mean, this is really an example of an origin that no one could be bothered with. An origin that was possibly a placeholder that someone on staff said, meh, fuck it, it'll do, before signing off for the day. An origin so lazy, it beggars belief that people actually went with it. So, are you ready for the silliest villain origin in comics? The kangaroo's origin is... He lived with kangaroos. 
ate what kangaroos ate, went where kangaroos went, and suddenly developed the ability to jump and fight like they do. Nope, no, that's it. I'm, I'm really not kidding. There's no serum to duplicate the power of a kangaroo, no radioactive exposure, nothing. He lived with kangaroos until he became one. So if I live with a billionaire, will I become a billionaire? I mean, maybe if I'm married to them, possibly. The kangaroo then becomes a wrestler, and he punches someone a bit hard, which I think is one of the downsides of the job, but the referee comes down and, like, he's just killed Apollo Creed. It's a fight. The opposition gets hurt. That's kind of unfortunate, but it's part of the gig. It's not an offence. We aren't told that this is an illegal fight, and there are proper rules and referees, so it must be legit. It's unlucky, but again... You know, don't step into the ring if you don't want to be hit a little bit hard. Anyway, the kangaroo got all scared, so he went to live with his auntie and uncle in Bella. Actually, that's not true. He legged it to America, where he was instantly deported for not having a passport. I mean, literally, he gets off the boat and is caught by people who turn him around and say, Nah, you can't stay here, mate. Go back to Australia. I don't know why there are already Australians in Florida, other than the kangaroo, obviously. I mean, are there a lot of boats from Australia to Florida? Why did he rock up in Florida? We're about in Florida. It's quite a big place. I mean, geographically speaking, if he was on a boat from Australia, wouldn't he have ended up in California or Mexico? To get to Florida, wouldn't he have had to sail all the way around Brazil? None of this makes any sense. Anyway, if fate has made me a criminal, he declares, then I won't fight it. That was the best Australian accent you're ever going to listen to on a show that doesn't actually have any Australians on it. Or alternatively, maybe I should apologise to the Australians for the hate crime that was that accent. Anyway, fate hasn't made you a criminal, you moron. You haven't actually done anything wrong. Hobie Brown, in the last issue, did more wrong than you have done. I'm not sure... But I don't think me and this issue are going to get along. Elsewhere, Peter has been put in bed by his Aunt May who thinks he looks ill. Peter's a grown man. This is hugely embarrassing. He has a life he needs to be getting on with. May has no right to do this. It's an incredibly lame plot development. For some reason... A platoon of police are guarding a canister of live bacteria. You know, just at random, out of the blue. The kangaroo steals it. Why? Who cares? The kangaroo doesn't. He's no idea what he's just stolen. I'm beginning to think the kangaroo isn't very smart. He thinks it's jewels because, you know, it looks exactly like them being a vial of liquid. <sighs> Apparently what it is he's stolen is, is lethal and, and dangerous. And if it's opened, all of New York could die. Peter hears about this on the news, and instead of saying to his aunt, I have to leave because I have a class to go to, or I have a job that I need to go to, or I'm a fucking adult, butt out, grandma, he leaves a web dummy in his bed and changes to Spider-Man to go looking for the kangaroo. He finds the kangaroo robbing a penthouse where a sexy party is occurring. 
Spider-Man realises he can't just beat the kangaroo as it may dislodge the vial, fall, break and cause the plague. However, Spider-Man can quite clearly see the vial in the kangaroo's breast pocket. So why doesn't he just web it away from him? Answer, because we have half an issue still to go. Back with May, being a busybody about Peter, she's trying to get him to take some medicine. She is so shocked to see a web dummy in bed and not Peter, she passes out. The fight continues. Spider-Man manages to get the vial. He returns it to the police and then returns home to see May passed out. He convinces May she was seeing things and gets her into bed. Peter convinces his elderly aunt that she's insane. Well done, Peter. Well done. And so concludes this largely inconsequential and, let's be honest, pointless issue. The kangaroo gets away, and no one cares because he's a shit villain. He wasn't even given a real name. The kangaroo wouldn't be seen again until issue 126, three years hence, where he would be killed off for being too stupid to live. There are no appearances in this issue by Gwen, Harry, Mary Jane, Flash or Captain Stacy, and other than a cameo from Jonah, nothing is set as the bugle. It is an eminently skippable issue. So let's hope number 82 is better. The cover is already pretty damn good, even by Ramita's standards. Spider-Man is attacked by Electro in a busy TV studio. The figures are smaller than Ramita normally does, but by pulling back the camera, Ramita gives us more to appreciate. It may be one of his best covers of this era, and that's really saying something. And then came Electro, shows the limited amount of effort Stan was putting into the titles at this point. Buscema has gone from the credits, and this is a Lee Ramita Mooney presentation. This is probably for the best. Stan was relying a lot on his collaborators at this point, his workload finally taking its toll. And a good collaborator gave Stan good plots to work from. But Buscema, by his own admittance, was not a fan of superheroes. He liked Conan and the Silver Surfer. As such, whilst his art is beyond compare, these last few issues, where Basima has been the main penciler and presumably the plotter, have all been rather lacklustre. It's a testament to Buscema's professionalism that the comic looks as good as it does, but there's no disguising that the last few issues haven't had that oomph that we normally associate with Spider-Man. The splash page is unusual. Peter sits, moping about his aunt, his thoughts plagued with doubt about his relationship with Gwen, his mooching off Harry, his secret being exposed by either Jonah, Captain Stacy, or Robbie, and how even Flash is becoming a human being, and yet he is... not. Notable by her absence, he doesn't think about Murray Jane at all. But, yeah, soulmates. Peter is quite rightly castigating himself for causing May's recent turn for the worst when the doorbell rings. It's Anna and Murray Jane returning from Florida. Wait, when was it established MJ went to Florida? Doesn't she have classes and a job? Publishing-wise, the last time we saw Murray Jane, it was still issue 65, which is quite a considerable time ago. She still had her curly perm, so Ramita taking her off stage was to allow her her time to grow back, given the negative reaction from the readers. MJ hands Peter the phone and tells him to call Gwen. It would have made much more sense for the phone to ring. Otherwise, Murray Jane arrives straight off a plane from Florida and tells Peter to call Gwen, when she would presumably not have had any time to speak to Gwen, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Murray Jane has arrived back just in time for Flash's farewell party which must be his third such party this year. 
Peter tells Gwen he'll be there, and MJ says he'd better. Everyone has to chip in. Realising he has no money, Peter makes his excuses. I'd better check my mouthwash, quips MJ, and takes to the skies as Spider-Man, hoping to find a crime to photograph. Spider-Man is the only superhero who goes out hoping there is crime. Sadly, a chimney stack belches dirt all over his costume. With nothing doing, Spider-Man heads home and sees Harry shaving off his ill-advised tash. Maybe he didn't grab Mary Jane, Peter thinks. But if Mary Jane has been off since issue 65, she's never seen it. Harry only grew his tash in issue 74. With Harry in the apartment, Spider-Man decides to swing around a bit more and hits upon the idea of being a guest on a TV talk show. He drops by an executive meeting to pitch his idea. In a funny moment, one of the execs wonders why Spider-Man is wearing such a grubby costume. <laughs> As Spider-Man is haggling about contracts on the studio floor, one of the high-voltage cables has shot it out. The execs and Spidey rush out, but the danger has been dealt with by a man named Max Dillon, who somehow manages to throw the circuit breaker and shut down the power. Dillon should be dead, but no one seems to be paying attention to him. Spider-Man seems to recall the name from somewhere, but can't quite remember where. Before he can give it too much thought, he's hustled off to discuss the terms of his deal. This was a neat scene. As ever, Stan has fun with the TV executives, and it's left to the reader to wonder if the BJ who is in charge here is the same BJ who produced the movie Spidey and the Green Goblin starred in back in issue 14. Spider-Man not remembering the name Max Dillon is a lovely, realistic touch. Too often, these characters remember every moment of their lives, which, to be honest, they wouldn't. I don't remember what I did yesterday. Spider-Man has only met Electro twice as of this issue, issue 9 and annual number 1, unless we're factoring in untold tales, so it makes sense that he may not recall the name. After all, he doesn't get a good look at him, and he doesn't actually see what happens. Dylan has apparently been working as a spark at the TV studio, as a condition of his parole. He's still a jerk, though, planning to reignite his career as Electro when the time is right. His biding his time lasts about as long as it takes to turn on the TV to see local programming starring J. Jonah Jameson. Jameson has learned that Spider-Man is to be a guest on the Midnight Show, presumably a takeoff of The Tonight Show, and he's took to the airwaves to protest this and demand that all decent people support him in complaining that TV not be allowed to glamorise a masked criminal. Dylan agrees. You let him know, flat top. But then he hits upon an idea. What if he shows up as Electro and unmasks Spider-Man on live TV? It's not even something he could be arrested for. He could be paid for having his revenge. Back to Peter. He picks Gwen up at home and moans about having to take the bus. Gwen looks like she's wearing a suede dress with tassels around the skirt. Peter looks natty in an Ilya Kuryakin polar neck. They arrive at the coffee bean and Murray Jane flirts outrageously with Peter in front of her own date and Peter's girlfriend. Gwen threatens to pull her hair out. This is all done behind smiling faces, but there's a definitive veneer of rivalry between the two that borders on the unpleasant. But hey, Gwen and MJ were always best friends, right? Flash tries to hit on both of them and Peter nearly knocks him out. Peter leaves, and Gwen points out that he's been a bit out of sorts all night. Nobody thinks this may have anything to do with Aunt May. 
Jonah, meanwhile, is really riled up about the talk show appearance, and he's on the phone telling Robbie he wants a full-page editorial blasting Spider-Man on every front page between now and the Ur date. You're not guesting on any talk show if the Bugle can stop it! Electro then drops by Jonah's office and asks, how much is it worth to have Spider-Man unmasked on live TV? Jonah says a cool grand. Electro wants a hot five grand. Jonah would have paid 20. As funny as this scene is, it still shows a Jonah who's willing to pay a known felon money to take out Spider-Man in a public place where people could be hurt. Gwen, meanwhile, has followed Peter out, and what follows is a short but really sweet scene in which Gwen tells Peter she's not bothered about his lack of money or his problems. She loves him, and whatever their issues, they can face them together. The moment where she sits on a park bench with him and says there's nowhere she'd rather be is one of the purest moments Stan has written between the two. Two days later, it's the day of the show. Jonah invites Robbie and George Stacy to join him as he's managed to finagle some tickets. Robbie is suspicious that Jonah is so happy about Spider-Man being on TV. Peter, meanwhile, still has a dirty costume, and this leads to one of the best moments in a Spider-Man comic so far, the first appearance of the amazing Bagman. See, the laundrette is full, and so, to wash his costume, Peter adopts a paper bag over his head. He seems to think the people will think it's a college initiation, but forgets that he dropped out of the sky on a web. The night of the show. There's some pre-show banter with the host and then Spider-Man arrives. Electro wastes no time, only allowing two questions before leaping in with the attack. Jonah is delighted and demands Robbie and George stay to see what's happening. And it's here Robbie and George realise Jonah set this up. This is a premeditated attack. Both men are appalled and yet do nothing about it. George should have had Jonah arrested for this. The fight between the two of them isn't Ramita's best. He doesn't really use the location to its best advantage and Spidey's way of defeating Electro, he ties his hands and feet together and short circuits him, doesn't really seem that credible. Peter, however, takes a serious beating here. His hands are burned, his costume shredded. He returns home without the money naturally, and collapses on his bed, wondering, if this is victory, what the hell does defeat look like? Ramita being back in a full-time capacity helped this issue immeasurably. It's better written, better structured, and just more interesting than the last couple of issues, with more time devoted to Peter and his friends. The humour is well done and not over the top, and there are lots of lovely little touches, like Bagman and the Gwen Peter scene on the bench. It's a step back in the development of Jonah, though, and that's a shame. For the second time in a row, the villain gets away. Electro will spend some time as a Daredevil villain, and when he next meets Spider-Man, it'll be in an issue of Marvel Team-Up featuring Daredevil. He won't appear as a main Spider-Man villain again until issue 187, nearly eight years down the line. For a villain as memorable as Electro, it's truly amazing how little he actually appeared in a main Spider-Man title. The experiment for one issue and done tales ends here, with Ramita returning, and we'll end just before we jump into a major three-part adventure next time. Stan was obviously a character who reacted to the idea his artists were bringing to him, and in terms of Buscema, the spark just wasn't there. Buscema was open and honest about this. He didn't like his long stint on the Avengers and couldn't answer questions about those stories. He just doesn't have an interest in them. I feel the same thing is happening here. Again, Buscema is a master artist, and I have nothing bad to say about the art, but if Stan was hoping Buscema would bring him the same kind of ideas for Spidey that Ditko and Ramita was bringing him, 
he was sadly let down. In Ramita's introduction for the Masterworks volumes containing these issues, he has nothing to say about the chameleon or the kangaroo, adding to my supposition they had little to do with these stories. He has a lot to say about the Prowler and the upcoming three-parter with the Schema and the Kingpin, but that's for another time. Hey everybody, Quentin Robison here. I recently attempted to sneak into the Longbox Crusade headquarters basement to watch some of the Albrecht Brothers action movies while the crew was out at the Saturday matinee theater. Too bad I had a little mishap and got stuck down here with no movies to boot. However, there are pieces of Pat's old podcasting equipment and excellent Wi-Fi service, so I decided to pass the time watching online fan films and talking about them. What, you don't know what a fan film is? Well, there are these non-theatrical movies that people post online of already established characters and settings. <laughs> hey, hey, hey now. Just wait and see. Save all judgment for what happens when you listen to Fan Film Fridays, a new podcast found on the Longbox Crusade podcast feed. Okay, I am running short of time today, but uh, let's consult the email bag for a few pieces of your correspondence. Symbol Pending has emailed in. Hi again. Staying on a theme, I read Ashes of Eden in comic book form, and whilst it's been a while, I got the general melancholy of Kirk feeling a bit rudderless. Sort of Wrath of Khan, but turned up to 11. Of the rest of the Shatnerverse, I never felt the need to read the rest of them. They just feel like massive ego strokes or fix-it fic for Shatner. I'm sure the full-on bonkersness is part of the appeal, but it's just not for me, unless you talk me around, obviously. Looking forward to the next podcast. Well, thank you very much for emailing in. I have, just this day that we record this episode, finished reading the second of the Shatnerverse novels, The Return. I say Shatnerverse novel, I think Shatner's relation with writing this book probably consisted of him showing up, saying, well, could the Borg resurrect Kirk? And Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens saying, yeah, that's a good idea. And Shatner say, right, okay, I'm done, I'm going fishing. And the Garfield Reeve Stevens actually wrote it because it doesn't feel in any ways, sorry, like a personal story like the Ashes of Eden did. It doesn't feel like a story that Shatner would even be able to write because um, it, it, there's just far too much continuity in it. There's appearance by characters from Deep Space Nine. There's acknowledgements of certain... I think on one page, I counted six continuity references on one page. And the whole thing ties up at the end with having the Borg related to Vija. There is no way Shatner could have put all that together. I flatly refuse to believe that. And overall, it's a romp, and it's a fun romp, and it's enjoyable. It's probably still better than Generations. Probably better than First Contact as a fun adventure story. But it just didn't feel as personal as The Ashes of Eden. It just felt rather empty. And yeah, the ego-stroking that Shatner gives himself in that one does start to go a little bit over the top. You know, Kirk taking out Worf in a battle of fight. I'm like, no. Kirk outsmarting Data. And I'm like, no. And it, it does start to get to the point, I think I mentioned in the Ashes of Eden, where Kirk is not only the greatest man who, who alive, but he's the greatest man who ever has lived or ever will live. And that starts to get a little bit worrying 
it's not that it was bad, it wasn't. It was enjoyable. And if they'd done it as the sequel to Generations, I think that would have been that would have been nice. But um, as I, I didn't find it as personal a story as The Ashes of Eden, and therefore I didn't think it was as good. But that's just me. You know, other opinions are available. There's always more Spider-Man. Appropriately enough for this episode is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hey there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. Always happy to hear you work your way through more issues of Spider-Man. Sounds like a bit of a dull stretch, though. The entire tablet storyline sounds like it hit the classic pitfalls of a MacGuffin-driven story up until Silvermane got it. Often these things play out where the thing itself doesn't really matter. It's just there to jumpstart the plot when necessary. Could have worked if the things connected to the tablet all played stronger, but it sounded like it was a missed bag across the line. And I'm right there with you in being annoyed when smart people basically seem to be across-the-board geniuses instead of specialists, as with Kurt Connors being recruited to translate the tablet. Yeah, because that's something a biogeneticist would know how to do, decode an unknown language. I don't care what the tablet is about, this is silly. It's pretty typical, though. Scientists in comic book stories might as well be wizards for the vast array of things they know. Just once, I'd like somebody like Hank Pym get asked about an asteroid and yell back, I'm a biochemist, you idiot, not an astronomer. But no, they always know just enough about literally everything to keep things moving. It's one of those things I had to stop bitching about because it's so typical. But it's a pretty big pet peeve. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. You compared Randy to Spike Johns, which confused me, but I'm going to assume you meant Spike Lee. I don't actually remember what that comparison was, but I actually meant, yeah, Spike Johns, the movie director. But Spike Lee works just as well, I suppose. Probably works better in many ways. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, Keith Mason, Elvis Kirk, and the Hooded Man. Keith has emailed in with another bunch of what he called. Six cracking episodes. Let's do the rambling. Lashings of time. As previously mentioned, I have now watched the pilot, well, the first episode really, of UFO and found it highly entertaining. I was able to fully appreciate your passionate advocacy of this programme. Your description of time lash was enough to make me now want to watch the rest of the episodes. Please do, and then let me know what you think of them. Thank you for the tablet. Thank you very much. I think that's a play on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Which was an old Roses chocolates advert, wasn't it? Maybe a bit of song as well. I don't know. I remain very fond of this era of Spider-Man and the Stone Tablet Saga. Your in-depth analysis only heightened my already existing opinion that this was a fantastic run on a comic that was light years ahead of its peers. I never got that Man Mountain Marco looked like Elvis, but now I can't not see it. When I reread Brian Azzarello's Cage miniseries, Marco was in that too, looking so much worse for war. So seeing how he started and how he ended up is an interesting arc for what could have been an unnecessary character. Sherwood Forest and its many salons. I have fond memories of this show, many of them with the Clanad soundtrack. It had a fantastic cast and was an interesting look at a legend and how it can be changed without upending the whole thing. It was the last time this was done well without it devolving into farce and parody and does deserve a reappraisal. It was more adult than most of the other shows of that era and felt deeper than many shows that followed it. It was great to hear about a piece of my childhood that genuinely still stands up. Horror and the Doctor. I always appreciate a look at classic Who. Its reach often exceeded its grasp regarding effects and scope, but it was almost always tinged with human drama. The usually very strong guest cast gave each classic story its own flavour, and there was always something worth watching in each story. Many of the Tom Baker tales were classics, a reminder that his iconic status as pretty much THE Doctor was fairly well deserved, and stories like Horror of Fang Rock were a great example of why. Thank you for this look at this unappreciated gem. 
Kirk, the man, the myth, the shat. As pointed out, I have read very few Star Trek tie-in novels. One of the ones I did read was the sequel to this, where Kirk survived the events of Generations. I was somewhat unimpressed, but feel that a reappraisal might be in order based on your episode. Well, as I've just said, Keith, um, I don't know that it is. I considered it a bit of a lesser work than The Ashes of Eden. It was fun, don't get me wrong, I'm not. This isn't a, I'm dissing on that novel. It was a fun read, really. And again, for the Reeve Stevens, very much a page-turner. But... Um, I didn't, I didn't like it as much as The Ashes of Eden. I think The Ashes of Eden was a, was a much better story. Finally, who disguised as? I just got into Superman with the John Byrne reboot with its Clark-centric idea of the secret identity and the focus on ongoing story, as it has always been my Superman. A few years back, I read myself some Bronze Age and earlier and looked at the pre-crisis Superman. One of the bigger problems I had was that version of Clark with his timid nature and lack of real personality. But once you got into the late 70s and early 80s, there are some good stories. This was one of the better ones, despite the sunscreen. Well, you know, that song does say worse sunscreen, doesn't it? The episode got me digging into that collection and I look forward to rereading this story again. Thanks again for some cracking episodes and brightening up many days of mine. Tata for now, Keith Mason being me so you don't have to. Well, thank you very much. Keith, much appreciated. Uh, always like to hear from you. Always like to hear from anyone. Remember, email in on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and tell me what you think, particularly of the ranking episode. I'm interested in other people's, where they would put things. Like I said in that show, that was my ranking, not yours. You, you'd probably have a completely different list. Um, join me again next time. Were, if everything goes according to plan, I will be looking at the two most recent Batman animated movies that featured the late great Adam West and Burt Ward in the return to the role of Batman and Robin, the return of the Caped Crusaders and Batman vs. Two-Face, which purely coincidentally also stars William Shatner. It's all going to be okay. It is. Honest. Okay. See you next time. Bye-bye.